This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 370. Hi, I'm Stephen M. R. Covey, the author of the New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling book, The Speed of Trust, The One Thing That Changes Everything. Shift your professional growth into high gear every time you listen to this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. How do people come up with truly original ideas? The answer is to think outside the box, way outside the box. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, if that's your honest-to-goodness desire, then intentional and consistent reading is a habit you must possess. I've developed this podcast to help you not only narrow your reading list, but bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Today, that involves a visit from Cyril Bouquet as we dive into his new book, Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas. I'm going to be asking Cyril to share why the ability to innovate is more important now than ever, how to use procrastination for good, the importance of the outsider advantage, and much, much more. Recently, I've begun to receive requests for proposals from companies wanting me to come in and lead meetings or executive workshops, helping with many of the things my new book talks about, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. That's out on Baker Books in August. And I'm getting these requests, I imagine, in part because I've been talking about the book coming out a lot lately. So if I can help your leadership team get the most out of the books they're reading, or maybe even help with things like instilling a culture of reading in your organization on a larger scale, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to reach me is shoot me an email, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. For more than a decade, Sirup Bouquet has worked at the Institute of Management Development with leaders of organizations like Cisco, Liberty Global, and the International Olympic Committee to develop new products and services and customer experiences. In his work as a professor of innovation and strategy at IMD, he orchestrates all kinds of innovation journeys for companies that seek to create the future. And his research has been published in the best academic journals. His new book, co-written with Jean-Louis Barsou and Michael Wade, is called Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas. And I'm thrilled to welcome him to Read to Lead today. Siru, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jeff. It's my pleasure. Well, I know that you and your colleagues at IMD uh, last year during uh, the pandemic looked at uh, you know, new and innovative ways to, to approach your work in light of what was happening. Why is innovation uh, so important right now during the pandemic and also you know, in the future as we, as we look to, to come out of it? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, many of the executives I work with at IMD ask me, when do you think the situation is going to come back to normal? And I tell them, are you sure you really want things to go back to where they were before the pandemic struck? Because, I mean, it was not a perfect place, right? And today I feel we live in a context where the world needs more original thinking. It needs bigger ideas. It needs more radical solutions to all of the problems that exist that we face. So whether you think about pollution, you think about income inequality, inequality around the world, to the current health situation, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that we need to deal with. And if you just go back to the COVID pandemic, 
indeed, it has created a massive shock for business and society. I mean, all of the clients I work with are really telling us that they have to rethink everything that they do. They have to revisit their daily routines. And, and tell me, Jeff, like how, how many of your listeners do you think work for companies that uh, had the attitude that if, if you're working from home, really, you're not working, right? <laughs> that the, the real work only gets done into the office. Yeah, probably 100% of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's right, right? I mean, all of us probably had this assumption. And now we are forced to, to revisit this assumption and, and, and barriers are dropping, minds are opening all around us. In fact, even for, for us here at IMD, for months, we've been debating, you know, should we, you know, sort of migrate, you know, those programs into an online environment? Because we engage with companies all around the world. It used to be face-to-face. And now, obviously, a lot of the conversations we have are organized online. Mm-hmm. And then in just a few weeks, literally, we decided to engage in big groups of executives online. And, and, and it worked. And it worked much better than we could ever anticipate. And, 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 and I think, you know, this is the opportunity that we have today with COVID, right? It is forcing us to rethink what we do and, and maybe find better ways, right, of organizing our activities. And this is an ideal moment for businesses to innovate because everybody, whether it's employees or it's customers, the suppliers, even financial investors, everybody is actually open to new ways of doing things right now. So we should seize that moment and innovate. Mm. I didn't mention this at the outset, but alien in the title is an acronym for the framework that Cyril and his co-authors have developed. What does it mean, Cyril, to think like an alien, basically? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting because what we realized when we worked with, with a lot of companies over the years at IMD, they all come to us because somehow they... They operate in very fast-changing markets and they need to revisit what they do. They need to reinvent the value that they try to bring to the world. And what we've realized over the years is that we saw tremendous effort going on. Executives are talented. They, they, they are motivated to make a difference in the business. And they go on those innovation journeys and they, they, uh, they basically have a lot of guidance that exists. But, you know, it doesn't always work. I mean, we've seen a lot of successes, but we've also seen a great deal of frustration. And, and obviously what we realize is it's not just because you tell people it's important, you've got to innovate, that they will do so. And often what they don't have is the right tools, the right mindset. And in particular, right, what we've realized is that people are always kind of prisoner of a number of assumptions that color the way they think about the future. So you've got a, a bunch of, of of marketing people who see the, the world in a certain way, IT people see the world in a different way. Then you've got the lawyers and, and often you, you put them in teams together, but they, they, they somehow have difficulty escaping, right? A, a core set of beliefs that have essentially uh, formed, you know, the way they come to, to, to understand the world. And the French call this deformation professionnelle. And that's really coloring the way you approach innovation. Mm. And, and sometimes those assumptions you know, permeate an entire company, an entire industry. You know, for years, I've worked with a, with a big train operator of France, SNCF. And, you know, in the first step of that journey, I spent a lot of time interviewing people, asking them, when you think about the train for the future, what is it that you think about? And everything that they mentioned was around speed, right? It was all about building a faster train because they are engineers, they believe in technological excellence. And of course, this emphasis sort of takes them away from other opportunities that might exist to innovate the quality of the experience for people who are actually on the train. Mm. And so everybody has those blinders. Um, and, and that's why we wrote this book is, you know, how can we come up with a metaphor, but also, as you mentioned, it's an acronym, right? That can help people escape those blinders and, and, and see the world uh, as an alien would, 
right? coming to the planet with a pair of fresh eyes. <laughs> mm. I love it when it can be an acronym and a metaphor at the same time. That's like perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a metaphor because imagine, you know, indeed an alien comes to Earth. Maybe you would conclude that the planet is, is populated by cows and cows have slaves that drive them around. Uh, so a very different view as to what reality is all about. And an alien is not constrained by those assumptions, biases that we bring to, to any situation that often constrain our imagination. But at the same time, you know, just saying you have to think like an alien is not particularly useful. I mean, we could have said think like a child, a beginner, an outsider, but you know, it doesn't really tell you what to do. And so we wanted a, an approach that, that actually people could remember that would give them a very concrete set of tactics, strategies that could really liberate their imagination and that could help them to come up with more innovative ideas to, to any important problem that they face in their lives or at work. Well, well done on your part. Um, uh, procrastination, Cyril, is something I'm regularly helping and coaching others to fight against uh, in my work. And you argue, though, that procrastination is actually a key component to generating breakthrough ideas. How does that manifest itself in, in the real world? Yeah, so, so, so indeed, in this acronym, you know, the ALIEN stands for different uh, letters. Uh, A is for how do you pay attention to the world. L is something that we call uh, levitation, which is a form of procrastination. Then we've got the I for imagination, the E for experimentation, and N for, for, for navigation. And indeed, procrastination, right? Uh, you, you're right, Jeff. You know, uh, it can be bad. I <laughs> mean, uh, in, in, in a way, if it lasts for too long and if it prevents you from, from taking any sort of productive action. But at the same time, what we realize is that deliberate procrastination, if it's done in an intelligent way, is very much part of the creative process, right? I mean, most books that exist and most approaches to innovation often present it as a race, right? I mean, you have to mm. sort of uh, emphasize the, the speed that is required to, to test your ideas and iterate your thinking and, and essentially move through execution. When in fact, true creativity, true innovation is more of a marathon, right? It's a process that takes time. And, and, and somehow, you know, procrastination helps your brain to, um, to come up with, with better ideas for, for any problem that you, uh, that, that you face. So it's not because all of a sudden you, you stop doing something that, you know, you've turned your back, right, on, on, on a very important problem that, that exists. There's a lot of unconscious processes that occur in our brains when we are not actively uh, involved, right, in a, in, in a particular activity. So imagine when you take a shower or you're exercising or you're driving to work, you're not doing something that is very productive. But in fact, it's interesting that often that's when we get most of our, <laughs> you know, uh, good, good ideas, right? And, and so, so we, we, we try to bring all kinds of, of, of reasoning and, and also science into the book where we explain that if we want to, uh, to create and if we want to come up with truly innovative ideas, we've got to stop what we're doing. We've got to create time for, for reflection. And that's a form of deliberate procrastination, if you will, that is very important uh, and, and mastered by, uh, by, alien, uh, by alien thinkers. Well, I, I think it was the old uh, Apple ad years ago, right? That began with the line, uh, I think it was Richard Dreyfus who voiced the ad, here's to the crazy ones. It sort of perpetuated this idea of individualism with regard to innovation. You call that a myth uh, that is both misleading and unhelpful. Why is that? Yeah, well, you know, I, mean, I, I think it's an important point, Jeff, that, that, that you're raising, because it's true that we kind of celebrate always the, the kinds of people who break the rules and, mm. and, and, and we are often happy to, to, to see the result of, of, of those mavericks who completely change the way things are being done in a company, in an industry, and ultimately bring progress to the world. 
But we see this as a very romantic, a romantic view that doesn't really recognize the reality that actually those rebels, if you will, face when they actually propose ideas that disrupt practices eh, that, mm. and that challenge the norm of, of how things should be done in, in, in the whole world. And, 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 and let's be frank, Jeff, like if you think about alien thinkers, often do you think they are portrayed as the good guys in, in, in the movies? Mm, yeah. Typically, the, alien, the aliens, right? I mean, they are depicted as the outsiders, the misfits. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't trust them. Uh, maybe they are threatening the, the, the way that, that, that we do things, even our safety. And so that's pretty much the same thing in organizations where a lot of the people who break rules right, are often met with a great deal of skepticism, mm. if not downright opposition. And so, in fact, I mean, all of the big vacuum manufacturers, when they were approached by James Dyson, uh, who came to present the sort of bagless vacuum cleaner, I mean, they rejected this idea quite, uh, quite fast, not because it, it didn't work, but because it challenged their revenue model. It challenged their assumption as to how they could make money in this industry. No more bags to sell. Right? Mm. And so, so I often tell people I work with that, yeah, you have to be a rebel. Right? But you cannot just be a rebel. You have to be a rebel with a cause. Right? You cannot simply be a loose cannon, a troublemaker, an anarchist. Right? You have to cause disruption, but causing a disruption that will help you achieve a cause that people really, really care about. Right? And so uh, the alien thinkers, the ones that we have studied, right, they actually identify meaningful problems that exist, and then they find ways to rally the world around them. Right around, you know, oh, maybe there's a better way of, of doing what we do so that we can be successful achieving this objective that you and I actually care about and that is so important for the whole world. I was so excited to see uh, an example I hadn't really heard or seen talked about before, and that was the Dyson example. Typically, when I read business books on uh, similar topics, they'll use Kodak yeah. <laughs> to sort of catch all example, you know, invented digital photography, but didn't want to threaten their film sales. So yeah. it was refreshing to see a different example <laughs> in this case. And there are, there are lots, right? I mean, there are lots yeah. of examples that are, that, that, that are similar. I, I guess the Kodak example is, is quite uh, often used in the field of business. Because precisely, you know, Steve Sasson invented the technology that ultimately killed the company because the company could not embrace the, the new model that he was presenting to them. But interestingly, he made a mistake, right? When he talked about the, the first digital camera, he, he, he took pictures and then he organized a demo for, for the top executive team. And, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is filmless photography. <laughs> and so by, by using the word filmless, Mm. Again, you are a rebel, but a rebel that is not perceived to, to, to advance the company. You're a rebel that, that is suggesting that somehow everything that we believe in, you know, everything that makes us proud as a company, right, has no future. <laughs> Firmless photography. So, mm. so the use of language so sometimes is, is very important to, to, again, rally people behind your cause and, and, and showing them that, that essentially your disruption helps to advance something that they truly care about as well. And, and in the Dyson example, didn't one vacuum company admit regretting not buying that company if and or the reasons to kill the idea? I, I guess, you know, if you ask them after the fact, when you observe such a huge success, it would be tempting to actually say, oh, you know, I regret uh, we should have done mm. something different, but it's, uh, but it's too late. Uh, but interestingly, I mean, in, in our research, we, we found plenty of, of, of quotes of executives who remembered, you know, those conversations they had at the time with Dyson who said, well, you know, I mean, there is no way that we would have ever embraced this model because somehow it, you know, basically forced us to develop capabilities that we didn't have. And, and it was not a, a vision of the future that we liked, right? So we w- it would have been left on, on the shelf somewhere. So at least, you know, uh, they, uh, they, they recognized that it was not just a, 
a lack of awareness. It, it was really that it was a model that challenged too much, you know, what they fundamentally believed was important to the future of their business. Well, Cyril, I've, I've long been a fan of, of helping leaders break out of their usual thinking by exposing them to new solutions from different industries or parts of the world. I, I think that's fascinating when that happens. Talk a bit about this concept you call the outsider advantage. Yeah, the research is pretty clear on that, right? I mean, outsiders and people who come from different organizations, different industries, different countries who bring, uh, you know, very unique uh, perspectives to, to, to any given challenge, right? Find it easier to, to develop, uh, to develop novel, uh, novel ideas. And that's because again, they, they don't have the same preconceptions. That, that they uh, actually bring to the, to the table. So they see things with fresh eyes. They, they rely more on outside uh, experiences. They don't know what works best, you know, ex ante. Uh, and, and therefore, they're more likely to take what other people, you know, sort of uh, to question rather what other people take for, for, for granted. The, the story of Van Phillips is, is one that we tell in the book and, and it provides a good illustration of that, right? I mean, Van Phillips is a, was a young uh, gentleman who unfortunately had lost uh, his, his lower leg in, in a water skiing accident. And then he, you know, woke up, uh, you know, one morning with, with a prosthesis that was creating a tremendous degree of pain for, for him. And, and he couldn't believe that he would have to spend the rest of his life, you know, wearing such a, such a poorly fitted, you know, sort of prosthetic. And so he decided to design one of his own. And essentially what he realized when he started to talk to specialists in that area is that previous designers had always assumed that amputees like, like him wanted a solution that essentially looked like a human leg. Right? And then he realized, well, that's the wrong way to, to think about this, this issue, right? And, and then he realized that what he wanted is really a prosthetic that functioned like a leg. And then that helped him to turn his attention to, to very different you know, sets of influences and inspiration, if you will. So he looked at mm. diving board. You know, he, he, <laughs> he thought about the curved sword that, that was hanging in his father's office. And, and then he even looked to nature. He studied how the wild cheetah, you know, was able to, to essentially run so fast. And that's what helped him to design the, the famous prosthetic limb that, that powered, if you remember, uh, Oscar Pistorius, right? It was a double amp amputee uh, South African uh, runner to succeed as a, as a professional sprinter. And so th there's plenty of research evidence that suggests that a lot of people have this outsider advantage. If you can come to an organization, right, and be open right, to different ways of doing things, right, then, uh, then you're more likely to, to come up, right, with, with very, uh, very creative ideas. And this is why today you see so many organizations also are putting in place processes to use what they call open innovation, right? How can we tap into all kinds of resources and, and, and people who are not familiar to our uh, industry, who are not familiar to the way we do things in this company. And, and, and maybe if we are able to do that, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, bring very different experiences that can fundamentally help us uh, reinvent you know, what we do and how we do it. You contend that we all pretty much lose our imagination after childhood. Assuming that's true, what are some things we can do to, to try to bring it back? Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, first, it's not always true, right? I mean, my, 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 uh, my greatest mentor at, at, at IMD uh, is a guy named, named Bill Fisher, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of his work. And, and, and he was the, the oldest, you know, sort of serving member, um, you know, on, on, on the faculty and, and certainly the most imaginative person that I've, that I've known, you know, throughout, throughout my life. And, and he retired, I think he was 72 or 73. And, and in fact, he's not even retired. He's, he's, he's continuing to, uh, to write and, and be very um, innovative and, and, and productive. But it is true that for a number of other people, right, like we tend to lose our curiosity as we, as we get older. And in fact, I think Pablo Picasso said it best, right? He said, every child is an artist. 
But the problem is how do you remain an artist once you grow up? <laughs> and, and, and it goes back to, to the fact that school, right, from a very young age is teaching us what is the, the right answer to, to any problem that, 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 that you have. It, it is also telling us about the kinds of behaviors that, that we should adopt, you know, all, all the time. And, and that kind of social, socialization, if you will, into the right way of doing things doesn't really help kids, right, to, uh, to maintain the, their imagination as they, as they grow older. And the more we get old, the more we become obsessed with performance, with success, the more we become obsessed with the fact that people are watching us, right, as we do anything creative, and, and we are afraid of, of, of being judged, right, in case we, we don't succeed. But fortunately, there are things that we can do, as you, as you suggest in, in, in your question, Jeff, right? And so, so often, you know, I ask, uh, I ask people um, I work with, I say, okay, take two minutes and draw uh, your neighbor, Right? Very quickly, just draw your neighbor on a piece of paper. And so people start to, to, to do this and, and they are laughing and laughing most of the time. But actually, a number of, of people struggle, right? I mean, they're, they're afraid of looking ridiculous. They don't know how to draw. Uh, they are worried, you know, maybe people will ridicule, you know, their, their, their creation <laughs> and, and so on. They feel they're not competent to do that. And it's interesting, right? Again, young children don't have those inhibitions. If you ask them mm. to draw anything, they, they, they will do it. And they know that their drawings are not going to be perfect representations of reality, but but they don't care. And mm. I think that's what we can do, right? I mean, it's like we have to maintain right, this worry-free child mindset, right? And, and just play with ideas, right? Play. It's mm. a, imagination is, is an act of play, right? We don't exactly know, you know what the future looks like. We don't always have a clear hypothesis at the start. We may have intuitions. We may come up with ideas. But rather than to try to intellectualize everything all the time, right, we should just get on with it, right? I mean, we should uh, try things and, and see what happens in practice and, and, and essentially let the future unfold, right? And, and learn from it. Right? So we don't invent the future, we create it. Mm. And the act of imagination is this active, you know, sort of uh, process of, of, of putting things together, right? And, and, and then trying to see what happens when, when, you, when you advance, you know, with, with those new concepts into the, into the future. Well, so we've talked about attention. We've talked about levitation. Uh, we just talked about imagination. Experimentation is is next. Yeah. But but Ciro, you say too many of us are doing it wrong and end up missing some surprising insights uh, in the process. Uh, what are some of the more common mistakes that you've seen with regard to uh, experimentation? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, all executives understand the importance of experimentation. Right? I mean, testing your ideas to make sure they have merit. Mm. But, the, but the main problem that we've observed again and again and again with, with people we work with is that somehow, I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're coming up with, with a very creative idea, you, you love it, right? And I mean, and, 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 and you, sometimes you fall in love with it. And, mm. and, and succeeding with those ideas will, in fact, require a certain degree of persistence. A lot of people will tell you it's, you know, it's been done before, or actually, I don't see how this would work in practice. So you need this persistence to push those ideas forward. But the problem is that what we've seen is that people actually then only seek evidence that will actually confirm that their initial thinking is, is, is correct, right? Mm. One, one executive I worked with, you know, put it in a, in, in a very nice way. He told me, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. Right? <laughs> so I, have, I, I have this great idea, right? I have a theory of the world. And then everybody mm. is, is asking me evidence to prove that this idea has merit. So obviously, I'm running an experiment, but I'm looking for clues that support my thinking. I'm not really there to learn and, and, and iterate my thinking. And, and, and so clearly what we're trying to do when, when we work with very creative people is, is to make sure that they, um, 
they keep a certain degree of humility that they, they really want to learn and, and, and essentially let the data speak. Right? So, mm. so always have a, a, a lot of ideas in your back pocket and try to test uh, several ideas, not just one, so that mm. you're sort of more open to the, to the, to the feedback. Right? I mean, uh, that's the, the only way you can avoid what we call the segue uh, trap. Right? I don't know if you, do you remember that, that invention? Uh, mm. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, segue, this mobility device. <laughs> mm. and, and, and of course, Dean Kamen, who was, was so proud of, of, of this concept that he had invite, invented, was, was very much interested in trying to protect his IP. He was very afraid that people would steal the idea. And so they went through multiple cycles of, of experimentation, but, but actually relying on internal feedback only. So they didn't actually go to the users. They were just afraid of, of, of losing the, the beautiful uh, insights that, uh, that they had. And, and so in the process, uh, they, they basically missed a lot of useful data points you know, that could have helped them to, to, to improve to improve their, their initial device. And, and by the time they actually called on, on people like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos to ask them their opinions on the finished product, they were not really interested. They had already fallen in love with their concept. They were not interested in feedback that would distort. You know, their thinking, they, they did not want to bring any correction. So they only heard the positive comments, if, if you will, right? And, and, and as we know, I mean, this, uh, this device, I mean, the production stopped last year, I think, after less than... Uh, than two decades on the market, but he never reached the potential that maybe he could have had. So, so the key feedback that we give to people who are trying to innovate, when you're running this process of experimentation, make sure you're doing it in a way that helps you to improve on your ideas, right? And not just to prove that your thinking is indeed correct. I think that quote from earlier with regard to confirmation bias is one I'm always going to remember. If you torture the data long enough, it will it will confess. <laughs> it will confess, right? <laughs> exactly. And I, and I remember, Jeff, like when I was doing my own PhD, I mean, that's what you do. You develop hypotheses. You, you, you build a proposal. You have those hypotheses that you need to, to test. And then mm. obviously you're looking for data that can support your hypothesis. You're never just trying to collect data so that you can learn. I mean, you, you want right. to show that, that you've done your, home, your job properly. You develop a good theory. You want to prove it. <laughs> right. Well, well, the last part of the framework is one uh, C-Rule says uh, many leaders and innovators actually neglect. Uh, talk about the importance of navigation. Yeah. So, so navigation for us is, 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 is really key. And that's often where the, the, the rubber hits the road. Mm. If we are innovators, right, to succeed, really have to be able to navigate the forces that can make or break their project. And, and, and the most creative people that we've met often underestimate, if you will, the, the skepticism, the criticism, mm. the downright opposition they'll face from the, the, the very same people who could benefit from, from, from those ideas, <laughs> right? Uh, and the breakthrough that they propose. So we've talked about, you know, Steve Sasson, or you said everybody's talking about Steve Sasson and, and Kodak uh, and the firmless photography uh, mistake, right, in, in the use of, of, of language. But this is not unusual, right? I mean, Great solutions get get squashed all the time because they they clash. They clash with the core paradigms. They clash with the beliefs that are in place. Mm. They don't fit right, the expectations that people have uh, around you know what is working well and should not be uh, be touched. So 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 an, as an innovator, you must learn to sort of identify right the frictions that can kill your ideas and then get get people on on, on board and don't trigger those allergic reactions if you will that uh, <laughs> that, that that could be uh, evolving right uh, as as you present your 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 concept right and and, and language is key in this respect right uh, uh, very much like like a former innovator at, at lego or the head of 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 innovation at, at lego was was telling us you know you have to be a diplomatic rebel, right? I mean, you have to build bridges. Right? So you mm. can't just emphasize the disruptive nature of, of your idea because that, that will uh, scare people who are trying to protect what, what works well. So, so you have to build bridges and, 
and, and, and making sure that they, they can see the, the value of what you're doing and, and that they don't feel threatened by, by the ideas. You, you mentioned Lego. Who are some examples of individuals or companies that you think are doing a good job at this today, this, this idea of alien thinking? There's not one way of, of doing it, right? I mean, it's always dangerous when, when you're asked to, to give one example because, because obviously there's no uh, simple formula for <laughs> how do you come up with, with a breakthrough solution. But there are countless examples of, of people in all spheres of life who are finding ways uh, to, to really challenge the status quo and, and come up with better solutions to the important problems that, that we face in this, in this world. There's a lot of people that we could mention, but but I'm a big fan personally right now of, of of Jimmy Wales. And just yesterday again, I was I was reading how he is continuing to to evolve the Wikipedia uh, business model. And, and and today, you know, it's, it it seems obvious that oh yeah, somebody of course, you know, with the internet uh, would have created this knowledge platform. I mean, most of us take this for granted now. But actually, if you look at this journey, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite interesting because Jimmy Wells was not a computer scientist when he started. He was not a tech specialist, right? But he was someone actually who played video games online. <laughs> and in fact, that's what focuses attention on the possibility of large-scale projects where, where people you know, are dispersed all around the world would collaborate. Uh, and, and somehow he felt, well, you know, we could bring this to all kinds of social domains and, and, and not just the, the development of software, right? So we, initially it was all about software, maybe, uh, you know, how could we develop software, you know, with teams of people dispersed around the world? But he said, no, we can do this. And so that's what started him. And then and then it was also a brave move to, to basically decide that just any citizen right, could contribute knowledge and articles to a knowledge platform mm. and not just a committee of certified experts. Right? Um, even though initially that's what he was trying to do. Initially he was trying to completely... Uh, build this encyclopedia with a network of certified experts, but he realized it was taking so much time that he could never scale the, 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 the solution. Uh, and so he went for this sort of knowledge uh, democratization, if you will, where mm. anybody anywhere in the world could, could, could actually contribute to any topic of interest and the community would, 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 do, the, would do the rest, right? And, uh, and, and again, all the assumptions that he challenged Right, realizing that in fact a community cannot be managed, it cannot be centrally managed, right? So there there should not be a top-down uh, decision structure. There should not be economic incentives uh, that direct the way people contribute to this uh, to this platform because it would kill the, the the service. And so to me, you know, Jimmy Wales essentially was able to completely challenge the economic logic that existed at the time when he mm. built what today is the largest, the most successful encyclopedia, and he's continuing to evolve the. The formula every day. I just read that he was uh, now approaching companies to develop special types of services for them that would again uh, bring uh, new colors to uh, to the future of, of the business the way he envisioned it. Mm, great example. Well, I got a, a couple of questions I want to ask you, not directly related to the book. Before I do that, though, anything else from the book you want to make sure that we walk away with today? Oh, well, I mean, thanks, uh, Jeff. That's that's nice to ask. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- th- maybe if there's one thing is. Is, is, is to emphasize, I guess, the, the benefit of, of technologies, right? I mean, in the book, mm. we, we look at how people, right, actually try to amplify their, 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 their creative potential. But today, right, we know that digital tools can, can actually bring fantastic possibilities to, to how um, innovation happens in, in, in practice. And so if you think about what it was in the past, I mean, great innovators, you know, needed good data and what that often uh, meant is you know spending a lot of time yourself in the field trying to understand you know what are the problems we we, we face you know uh, uh, what are the solutions that make sense 
And uh, if you take the example of Margaret Mead, the, the famous anthropologist, I mean, she spent uh, almost a decade in studying tribes in, mm. in Papua New Guinea. And, and today, I mean, we realize that we can collect a lot of information, we can understand behavior, we can understand a very complex social phenomenon by using sensors, by using uh, social listening mechanisms. We can build digital twins of objects to experiment quickly, safely, cheaply. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we can do. And we really take a, a big look, if you will, in, in the book about the power of those digital technologies and how they can help you uh, innovate in, in, in very fancy ways. Siru, one of the things I, I love about authors is not only do they write books, uh, but they love to read them too. If I were to uh, corner you and, and ask you to uh, name a book or two that has uh, impacted you over the course of your career or life, what are the ones that immediately come to the, to the top of your mind? So, so it's interesting. I mean, I've read books uh, all of my life. And I remember my, I didn't like it at the time. My, my mother, right, was, was, was forcing me not only to read books, but to actually write those little, you know, sort of books, cards, <laughs> you know, where you would have to, to explain, you know, uh, on one or two paragraphs, the, the, the summary of the book, but then provide uh, an analysis of the characters and, you know, and what <laughs> do you take away from, from this? And at the, at the time, I, I thought this was really difficult to do that. I don't do it with my own kids, but, but I think there was something very nice about it that, that serves me uh, right uh, today. Mm. Because in fact, there's so many insights that you can get from, from books where, again, you, it's a form of levitation, right? I mean, you, you mm. kind of disappear, you disconnect from you know, the crazy world in which you live. And, and somehow when you, you enter the text, you, you start to imagine. You, you, you know, uh, it's, it's not the same as watching a movie, right? I mean, when you read the text, your imagination is, is, is firing up because all kinds of images come to your mind. And, and, and so I've always gotten a lot of inspiration from, from reading books. And, and I guess one that I keep reading and referring to all the time is this book, uh, I think it was published in, um, in, in the, the end of the, 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 the 70s, called The, the, the Essence of, of Decision. It's mm. uh, essentially uh, a, an explanation of the, the, the Cuban uh, MISO crisis you know, mm. that, that, that happened. And, and what I found fascinating in this book, The Essence of Decision, is to realize that, in fact, you know, there's not one take on, on, on the reality. So if you read the first chapter, it's all about presenting the government of the United States as a sort of rational actor. You know, there is a goal. We evaluate the options and, and we essentially pick the one that is maximizing the, the utility for, for all the, 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 the people involved in the country. And, uh, and you read this and you're like, yeah, that's a pretty, you know, good explanation and you really believe it. And then you go to the next chapter. And it's a totally different model. It's about how everything is driven by routine. The government is essentially prisoner of a bureaucracy that exists and dictates you know, what people are going to do. And at the end, you may end up taking decisions that are not rational, but are just uh, the end result of all those protocols and routines that exist. And when you read this, you're like, geez, I cannot believe this is how things <laughs> get done in organizations. And then you read the next chapter, and it's all about politics. And it portrays the most you know, powerful person in, in the, the whole world, maybe, Kennedy, mm. uh, uh, the president of the United States, and how, in fact, all kinds of, of people are playing games in the, in the corridors to bypass mm. his authority and, and essentially form coalitions that will push, you know, certain items to the, mm. to the forefront of, 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 of his attention. And, and in fact, if you look at the, the movie, there's a great movie called 13 Days, uh, with Kevin Costner that essentially showing you this, exactly the politics model and how do decisions get, get uh, taken. Uh, and, and, and that to me is, is, is a wonderful reminder of, of how you know, often we see reality through one lens. Uh, and, and if we were to actually a, a little bit pay attention to a few more lenses, 
Mm. You know, the way we construct reality would be would be enriched and, and different because the, there's a little bit of truth everywhere and we have to integrate all of those insights. Mm. With the book just coming out, you can breathe a sigh of relief in one sense, but you've still got a lot of work ahead of you, I know. Uh, but as you look ahead to the rest of this year and beyond and think about what you and your team are excited about and innovation, what, what's ahead for you that you're really looking forward to? Anything you can you can talk about today? Yeah, so so I mean, clearly we are continuing to to, to work with a lot of organizations. I mean, right now I'm, I'm, I'm working, uh, as you mentioned, with the with UEFA and the Olympic Committee, and also Maersk, the, the shipping company in, in in Denmark, and and you know they're all looking for very exciting ways to to reinvent the the, the value that they bring uh, to to important constituencies uh, uh, worldwide, and 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 again, technologies. You know, play play a big role. So, in fact, we we do spend quite a bit of time looking at artificial intelligence, looking at uh, Internet of Things, uh, looking at robotics, and how can we use all of those technologies to really be more creative and fundamentally uh, totally transform by the way we approach innovation in entire industries and, mm-hmm. and in companies. And and you know, we've we've put together a, a, a website called AlienThinking.org. Uh, where we we put actually stories and and so this is uh, dynamic content that will continue to evolve and so we'll provide a, a few stories on that website we'll we'll probably uh, put a number of tools as well that can help people as they they try to to come up with better and more innovative solutions to problems they face in their lives then hopefully you know we can contribute to that effort and, and give them a few resources uh, that might be useful to their quest alienthinking.org awesome Yes. Uh, well, the book again is called Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas, co-written with Jean-Louis Barsou and Michael Wade. His name is Cyril Bouquet. Cyril, thank you so much for, for being our guest today. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It was my great pleasure. You know, I enjoyed this book so much, I gifted a copy to a former colleague of mine. If you'd like to dig into more of what we talked about today, the links, resources, that website that C-Rule talked about, even to connect with him online, just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash 370 for episode 370. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 370. With my book coming out in August, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career, my fall and winter schedule is filling up fast. If you'd like to talk about how I might be able to help your leadership team or organization with some of the concepts in the book, maybe even help with instilling a culture of readership in your organization, I'd love to hear from you. Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Here's what the rest of May looks like. Last week, I said something along the lines of here's what the rest of April (laughs) looks like. I meant May. Uh, We've got John Stange to finish out the month. He's written a book called Dwell on These Things. And next week, a returning guest, Jim Roddy. And beyond that, I can tell you the entire summer is already planned out. We've got a great lineup of guests coming your way. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Readers lead.